Mad Hat Economics. So this is our worldwide debut. My name is Roberto, and I'm here with some of my friends, Joaquin. Hello. Andrew. Yes, yes. And Isabel. Hi. So we would like to talk about the motivation behind doing this podcast. So we're in it, guys, a very gloomy town. We can do things outside. And so we just wanted to talk about our interest. And it happens that our interest is behavioral economics. Now, how to run a podcast is a whole different story. Not that any of us knows what we're doing. But so what's behavioral economics, right? Andrew would like to tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. Okay, so I'm in the graduate program here for behavioral economics. Joaquin, to my right, is studying just plain old economics. So we wanted to have a little debate about the differences. Um, in my opinion, I believe that traditional economics is based on the assumptions that people are rational consumers. You know, they have all the information they could ever need, and they make choices that would give them the max outcome for the utility. So let me pause here for a little bit and... Just talk about what behavioral economics problems, right? What can this address? For example, this can address a search price in an Uber. We're going to talk about romance. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about lotteries. We're going to talk about why people say they want to do something and actually they don't do it. For example, when people say, well, I want to be healthier yeah. and they don't need healthier or I want to work out more and they work out, for example, a month. And if they don't people know. were rational consumers, they should be able to, you know, not give into their uh, temptations not, of being rational or not rational. Right, because the idea is that we would be able to plan ahead, right? We would be good planners. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that we're not good so planners. So on the flip side, behavioral science argues that people are irrational and they don't always work in their best interests. Is that correct, Joaquin? Am I, or am I living in the past? Um, no, I think the, the most interesting thing about behavioral economics is that it has a foundation um, in a lot of the ideas of traditional economics, but it really addresses um, the gaps in, in the economics field, which is um, why it calls on, on being multidisciplinary. You bring in ideas from, from psychology and from marketing and, and, and from really uh, an applied perspective to try to figure out uh, a lot of the, the, the smaller and more delicate issues um, that you know, general economic theory can't capture. Yeah, and, then, and that's based off you know, writings from Kahneman, Thaler, uh, a whole slew of people that are you know, kind of making way for this new quote-unquote industry or studies, but it's been around since the 70s. It's just getting a new title now. So actually, I think that the first experiments run in economics were here in Cornell and was around the 1930s. Really? So, so that's, that's, that's even more interesting. And besides Kahneman and Thaler, we can also cite the most popular behavioral economist nowadays, which is Dan Ariely, who deals with things of morality. And, and I mean, I think this is one of the areas of interest that Isabel has. Yeah, for sure. Just like the question of behavioral economics can nudge you to make better decisions concerning health and all of those things that Roberto talked about. But is that okay? Is that... Right. A moral thing to do when it's not necessarily in the person's intent to make that decision. So we all know about David's just food science research about, you know, how to get people to eat more vegetables, fruits. So in that case, you know, I would assume that positive nudging would be beneficial, you know. Um, obviously, there's a ton of writing on how advertisers are using this, manipulating this. But, I mean, they've been doing that for ever, you know. <laughs> they've been doing that. They'll, they know probably more about behavioral economics and nudging than we do right, right at this point. Because, you know, you go down the cereal lane and you have all the eyeballs looking at you. And that, even though it sounds weird, that's behavioral science. That's eye tracking. That's, you know, facial coding to a degree. Well, it is. And what about maybe when you guys were growing up, you could still find, like, little toys inside the, the boxes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah so, so that, that doesn't apply to the rational consumer. It's just for the kids to actually 
have an emotion like the mystery grabbing something and then just bothering their parents for them right. to buy it again, right? Well, I really think that a fantastic example of the irrational consumer is children because just by nature they're irrational, so it's a lot easier to nudge them. Uh, and I think you see that in a lot of marketing tactics used by companies that, that aim at, at children and and kind of like cartoon television shows and things like that. Right. So currently, Andrew is doing an experiment, which actually was today, yesterday was filmed by CNN. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about that and what you're doing? Yeah, cool. So this is, again, played into morality of nudges. So we're doing a nudge about... Um, so previous studies have shown that if you color every fifth Pringle chip red, it will lead people to eat less Pringles. So we're testing this experiment and we're seeing if we openly acknowledge this nudge will people still have the same results? Will they eat less? Or, you know, will they be mad at us for helping, trying to nudge them in this way? And uh, we'll see what the result is. Right now, getting the data back, we are seeing that they do want to be nudged in this way, which is very exciting. We haven't yet to count the chips, uh, but they're grabbing the product when we give them the choice of having a regular can of Pringles versus the red Pringles, so. So what do you mean by they do want to be nudged? When we give them the option to pick a regular can of Pringles or the can of Pringles that we manipulated to have every fifth chip red, they are choosing the red Pringles. And they're conscious that that would nudge them, or you explain that to that, them. Yeah, right? that's the speech I just gave, is mm -hmm. the speech I say to them. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so we did a study and there was 10 people and eight went for the red chips, you know, and two went for the controlled. And I'm not gonna say that throughout the rest of the, the research that's gonna be the same probability, but that's what we're seeing right now. So it's yeah. that people want to be nudged. And then you look at the morality, or there's the, the question of why would a snack food brand uh -huh. want people to eat less? And how would this, yeah. in the bottom, at the end yeah. of the day, increase their margins? Which you know? almost raises an interesting uh, behavioral question on its own, which is people would rather be artificially nudged to eat healthier than, than take it upon themselves to, to be responsible for, the, for, you for think those less. actions. Yeah, yeah. Less, uh, what is it? Right. Less brain. Yeah, well, two, two mind or... Yeah. No, there's a mental bandwidth. That's, that's the concept, right? I was trying to use yeah, we don't have time to make yeah, yeah. all of these little decisions, so it's easier to have someone else make it for you, for sure. Right, but right. I think that specifically applies to health. It would be interesting to look at this concerning things that I think people feel more strongly about, like potentially a 401k or organ donation or any of those where it might be more personal. I think not to make it too strong of an assumption, but most people want to eat healthier. So and if you can effortlessly effortlessly eat healthier, that's that's not a bad situation to be in. Yeah. And I guess it's easier to agree to be nudged in that. But you're right when you bring up more controversial issues, yeah. uh, then that's when the morality uh, right. question comes comes up. So interestingly, now going back to Isabel's point with the with the organ donation, there's a there's a cool study. Um, I don't recall the researchers right now, but. They show you, a lot of countries in Europe, for example, they show you Austria, they show you Germany, they show you Denmark, they show you Sweden, they show you um, the UK and France. So the idea is that Austria and Germany are not that culturally different. But if you look how many people donate organs in Austria, almost all of them do. Almost all of them are signed up to donate. On the other hand, in Germany, I think it's about 20% that are signed up to donate. And you see the same things happening with Sweden and with Denmark, the same thing again with France and with the UK. So why is the reason? Well, so you can take mm, probably rational approach as well. People here um, don't care that much about others or maybe they just want to be buried with, with their whole body intact. But the interesting thing here is the following, right? So if you, in the US, if you want to be a donor, um, when you're trained, when you go to the DMV and get your license, you need to sign, say like, you need to opt in basically. You need to say like, okay, so I want to be a donor. What happens here is that in Germany, you go, it's the same system, you don't read, and you just leave, and you're not a donor. On the other hand, in Austria, you need to opt out. 
So the default is that you are a donor. Mm -hmm. And what happens? People, again, go, don't read, leave, but they are a donor. I think that this has been tested in the U.S., I want to say, the opt-out program, and there have been some morality issues just concerning the fact that in the U.S. you have to sort of double opt to be an organ donor, so double you can opt out or sort of, like, you can sign up. When, when it's on your driver's license, that's one step of the process, mm-hmm. but then there's a second step, which is that, like, if you are brain dead, your family has to oh. give the okay, and so that has been an issue in that case because if someone just doesn't opt out, right. but then their family doesn't know that that's, like, that that was what they wanted or their family doesn't agree with it, it can be an issue in the hospital. I mean, it would be yeah. curious to see how many brain-dead people are in those mm-hmm. situations in the hospitals. But either way, so the, the health minister, minister of Wales saw this and he thought this was cool. So um, starting December 2015, last year, they changed their organ donation system. So instead of opt-in, now they are opt-out. So this is interesting. So there's going to be um, a way to see what's actually the effect of this thing. Because people are going to do what they assume people around them are doing. You know, if they see, oh, the condition is opt out. So a lot of everyone else is opting in. Why would I, you know, I got to be different to opt out. So what's the social norms related to that? Yeah, I mean, I would think that that would be an interesting point. And the other thing is that people are lazy and people just want to leave. Um, so, <laughs> so, so you just wouldn't do it. That's that's why probably the thing of the Pringles works great. Because you're not moderating yourself. You're letting the chips company actually moderate yourself. Or for example, again, if you want to eat less, use a smaller plate. So then again, you're not doing consciously, mm-hmm. but you're just using a smaller plate. So you're letting something else moderate your behavior. Right, so it's yeah. it's about that. It's about not wasting energy trying to do things that are not essential. So let's just do like, like a, a silly brainstorming thing. Let's just come up with a, a problem that's in today, and let's use behavioral science or whatever we call it, um, and try to solve this out just by. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're talking about There's it. some air quotes there. <laughs> that is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we wrote some stuff on the board here. So California's having like a water drought issue, using a lot of water. So what people have been doing, and which is the traditional approach to dealing with these issues, is send everyone a letter with either a smiley face or a frown on their water consumption. Obviously, if you don't use um, that much water, we'll give you a smiley face. Mm-hmm. And if you do use a frown, the funny thing is that when you use the smiley face, people are more inclined to use more water because they're like, oh, I'm doing a good job. So, I mean, what are our thoughts there? I'm thinking that, I mean, people use the most water on their lawns. So if we can get people to use rock lawns instead of, you know, grass lawns, that would have a great impact. But how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, so, so using grass, so using water lawns, um, I'm sorry, um, rock lawns, mm-hmm. that's very expensive. It is. I would yeah. think, I mean, it's, it's a huge change that you need to do. I think maybe a better way or an easier way at least would be to try to do lotteries. So what you do is, I mean, this is just an idea, right? But for example, if you're under the consumption of water, so if you're receiving a smiley faces, you enter into a lottery. For a free rock lawn. (laughs) (laughs) that could be that could be one possibility right mm. oh no another idea the bro. lottery thing is is another thing that's used a lot for behavioral science yeah yeah california is a huge state so yeah that's the other thing, how do right? you that's, how yeah. do you make it worthwhile when you have so many people living there that's the other thing i think yeah. it's, it would be better to see just by county like so so okay. where is this going to work best right and try to find different strategies i don't know what are your thoughts joaquin these kind of uh, tragedy the commons problems right. i think are very difficult to address uh but even you know if there's a strict line that california knows that they want a certain level of water to be used i think a cap and trade system could be pretty interesting borrowing from its success uh 
industrially with with uh, environmental policy. Um, you know, if you if if you're an excessively good um, at conserving water, then y- you can uh, lower the amount of your, your consumption to the point where you can trade your lack of consumption for some kind of probably monetary gain in exchange for someone else who literally cannot or has a, a difficulty. Exactly. So you have a, fa- a house with, with seven, eight people in it. There's no way you can lower uh, that water right. consumption compared to, you know, a, a couple living in a large house, but that can, you know, take ways to, to, to reduce their consumption. Well, it could be even small things like getting people to not take baths or not wash their dishes in the dishwasher, you know, just take short showers. Use Actually, the... I think dishwashers are better. I don't know. That's arguable. Okay? <laughs> I've, I've, you know, talked to dishwasher people. Oh, know. yeah, I have. <laughs> I was a blessed boy before. I mean, but the problem with that thing, like, is that these things happen inside your house. Right. And it's your, so yeah, you no control it. And you control You don't it. want someone messing with you. You don't want nobody yeah, messing with you. And the other thing is that nobody else is watching you. That's a good point. <laughs> right, there's no social norm to compare yes, to. Yes. Unless you're, like, going to a dinner party and you see that your friend is, like, using their dishwasher more or less. Whichever. Well, yeah. that brings up the question of, you know, could you do a public education to kind of normalize water usage? It, you know, if, if we don't have a point of comparison, could there be, you know, you could you could work with the data and you could you could show people what average consumption is and, and, and try to come up with some kind of, of measurement of, of what ideal consumption would be and then demonstrate that in actual life. Because you can tell someone the ideal consumption level is X, mm-hmm. but if you don't show them what that means in reality, then you're never going to achieve that level of consumption, right? Yeah, but I think going with the behavioral thing like that would be the ideal situation but that's a lot of work for the average person to see that information and then go okay like in my house I have a different dishwasher or like my bath is a different size and like how does this work for me like how do I translate this to my life and you you know thinking about nudges there has to be a way to translate that into some way that makes it easier for people. What if we color every fifth gallon of water red? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about red. Red would be the wrong color. Yeah. Maybe green. <laughs> so switching gears, Isabel, you, before we came in here, you were telling me that you were doing something with healthy branding. Yeah, I'm doing some research on just trying to figure out what kind of health branding message works best. Um, So kind of like looking at the marketing perspective of things, but also sort of the nudging perspective of how can you get a consumer who's not necessarily first thinking about health to just like happen to pick up a healthier product. And so I'm looking at, you know, functional messages and sort of symbolic branding. So colors, so using like a green or a blue to signify health and what works best. So, so that's very interesting. So do you think the packaging um, needs to be different to market it to women and to market it to men? Or do you think it has to be the same thing? No, I definitely think it's different depending on the demographic group, for sure. I mean, we were talking off off air about, uh, you know, income differences uh-huh. and how that can play a role. I definitely think, for sure, gender, but also socio- socioeconomic. Age groups as well. Yep, yeah. and age groups. <clears throat> like, if you think about, I'm, I'm looking specifically at meal replacement bars. So if you think about, like, a, a younger guy who's maybe more interested in, a product that's going to give him fuel for like a workout. Uh-huh. They're going to be more interested in a certain type of like functional 
message than maybe, yeah, a young mother who might be looking for either symbolic color-driven packaging or maybe like a leaf or maybe something that's a message about how it's processed. So the fact that it's natural and she can give something healthy to her kids. So where does the behavioral economics part comes in there? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, I mean, just like consumer behavior and making decisions that aren't necessarily based on like a front of mind decision, I guess. Like Pepsi is doing this crazy thing this summer. So I don't know if you guys saw, but they're releasing this the can, no branding at all on it. There's gonna have mm-hmm. three emojis on the can, like mm-hmm. of a smiley face, of a sun guy, like guy with sunglasses, mm-hmm. and like just three cool emojis to that's like. Cool. They're trying to hit like the millennial yeah, market or the younger, cool. but it's it's a non healthy product <laughs> being marketed in a in a behavioral way. Right. You know what do we think about that? Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> so, so so should that work, right? So should it matter it definitely what, what I what I display on my on my can? I I really think it does, and and I think something it's incredible is how unhealthy foods, particularly uh, yeah. um, sodas, have just marketed themselves beyond you know being a food product. They're they're now like a lifestyle product, yeah. and, and so you're buying these things to be associated with a certain I mean, if you look at Mountain Dew's branding if you look at Pepsi's branding uh, even even cheap beer companies like the the is it the Bud Light that Bud Light. the whatever commercials cheap beer companies yeah <laughs> like uh, it's very yeah, it's, yeah. so, so interestingly enough Bud Light is the number one selling selling yeah, brand yeah. in the US mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting and I also I feel like that's happening more recently especially because the the current trend is looking for healthier, in air quotes, like foods. So. so so this is what I think. I think that's a niche market. I don't think people care about, like, they say they care about health. Yeah, But I they agree. don't care about health. Have you, have you... No, I, I, I don't know about that. I think that them? people do care about health, but I think it's easier, less expensive well, to make other decisions. You don't have time to cook yeah. dinner every night, most people. A lot of people don't have the income to pay for more expensive, like, healthy options. Yeah, Yeah, so I wouldn't say that people don't want to be, don't actually want to be healthier. I just think it's harder. It, It can be harder, especially because there are so many brands that are cheaper that are less healthy. But for example, and I think soda is an interesting example. So what's cheaper, a bottle of water or a can of soda? Or maybe just going out to the fountain getting water, a glass of water, that, that that doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, but that's a good example of that lifestyle branding. Like, you become associated with something cool if you have a Coke or a Pepsi yeah. based on their, their marketing strategy. Well, so Millions, billions yeah. of dollars. So, so, so then, in a scale of wanting to be healthy and wanting not to be healthy, and then there's, there's another scale where you put, like, being cool and being healthy. Sure, are we ranking them? No, I mean, I mean no, because we're talking about health, but then he's like, no. So soda, it's about being I'm, cool, I'm saying, right? I'm so, saying... So then maybe people want to be... Yeah. Be, may, maybe being cool is more important than okay, being healthy. Uh, let's just get that question. So we're talking about being cool and doing things. So cigarettes are the cool thing growing up. Um, I never did it because I wasn't a cool guy. And so there's there's this thing going on with uh, marketing cigarettes and putting like the lung cancer and like diseased, you know, teeth or whatever, the gums on the packaging itself. And that is shown to reduce, you know, purchasing intent by right. a significant amount. But there's ethics involved in there. You know, people don't want to see that. And then it's cross countries. It's, you know, not allowed. So what were you saying about it, Joaquin? You were saying that in your country, your home country. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in a lot 
other countries around the world. And I know that um, both uh, Roberto and I's home countries, um, Uruguay and, and Panama, do very explicit bra uh, branding on their cigarettes where they have very grotesque images of uh, different diseases that can happen when you smoke cigarettes. But there is a point of discussion of how effective those uh, those tactics can be, right? I mean, we were talking about this earlier and just how, how well does fear work for someone who's already a cigarette smoker, you know? Or do they just ignore it because it's like difficult to think about from seeing the packaging? And then also like once the fear-based packaging becomes the norm, do you lose that shock factor after a certain period of time? And then is it no longer effective for that reason? And I don't have an answer, but... Well, Roberto gives a really good example, if you don't mind explaining, about death? the death brand cigarettes. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. So there was a product in the UK called Death Cigarettes. And the logo was a school. School, yeah. School, yeah. Crossbones. Crossbones school. And and they were telling you if you buy this, you're gonna die. Like you're gonna you're gonna get diseases, these kills. And people loved it. People just loved it. And everybody was laughing with them. Um, even the the cigarette companies and, and they were picking up in sales and everything. So how do we explain this, right? So I'm telling you straight up, this is bad for you. But you're still buying it. So what's what's the reason behind that, right? I wonder if they what? buy it as like a joke. It's a joke saying, oh, we know cigarettes are bad, and we're going to make fun of the cigarette companies that are making fun of the fact that it is bad, like putting these lung cancer songs on the logo. Because there's a coffee there's a coffee company now that had a Super Bowl ad. It's, I think it's called Death Coffee. Mm -hmm. okay. And yeah. they had a Super Bowl ad that was just like Vikings going, yeah. you know, depillaging. Yeah, but I think Death Coffee, that's a little different. <laughs> that's a different <laughs> it's not, they're not saying it causes death. They're I saying mean, coffee like... isn't that healthy for you in the first place. But... What? Well, so, yeah. so I think, I think the really interesting... <laughs> <laughs> really interesting point with uh, with death cigarettes is I, I wouldn't even think that the consumers of cigarettes it, it's that well thought of a reaction but I think it's very emotional because I think cigarette smokers are bombarded not just from the advertising point of view but just uh, from from people because of, of the social conscious with how unhealthy cigarette mm -hmm. smoking is and you know if you if you have a pack of cigarettes that's marketed especially in the U S where you know aggressive marketing tactics against cigarettes aren't legal yet it, it's very easy to, to, to pick someone out of a crowd for smoking cigarettes, telling them it's unhealthy, not to smoke around my kids, this and that. And and, and, and yeah, and, 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 and that has changed very rapidly in the past 20 years. So if you are a cigarette smoker, but you get a lot of negative reaction. But if you buy it, in my opinion, if you buy a carton of cigarettes that has a brand like death on it, you're showing people that you're already conscious of the bad mm -hmm. decision you're making, and yeah. you might be avoiding a lot of this negative right. reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is what actually a founder of this of this company, which doesn't exist anymore, was saying. It's like, we're being honest with people, and I think people like that. Well, so so these are some of the topics we're going to be going back and forth in, in Mad Hat Economics, our podcast. And some experts are going to be coming here, some people that really know about food marketing, some people that know about psychology, data-driven data, data, data policies, branding. Who do we have coming up uh, soon? Right, so in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having people that deal with eye tracking. Then our next episode has to do with lotteries. Um, then I was talking about Valentine's Day, about Romans, right? Like, why do people buy the things they buy to their partner? So, so these are the topics we're going to be touching here in, in this podcast, and hopefully it's interest for, for all of you that are listening today. But thank you very much for, for joining us, and thank you very much, Joaquin, Andrew, and Isabel, for being here. You, you really made this a delightful conversation.
gone mad? I'm afraid so. You're entirely bonkers, but I'll tell you a secret. All the best people are.